0: Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, a place for interdisciplinary conversations in the broad world of business research. My name is Andrew Jennings, and it's my pleasure to be your host. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, leave a rating and let other people know about the show, too. And if you have ideas for the show, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. All right, time for the episode. Our guest today is Martin Sibylis Associate Professor of Law at Emory University. We'll be discussing his new article, Corporate Law as Decolonization, which is forthcoming in the UCLA Law Review. I'll a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Martin, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Andrew, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. Martin, I'm really excited about our conversation today about this article. I wonder if we can set the stage a bit with An introduction to your research agenda as a legal sociologist. And in this paper, you introduce an economic dilemma faced by countries between independence and decolonialization on one hand and continued colonial dependence on another. And this is an economic dilemma as you frame it. I wonder if you could talk about how perhaps post colonial nations have sought to address that economic dilemma or introduce the idea for us. We'll get deeper into it as we move along in the the conversation. And what countries or regions do you focus on in
1: this article? Thank you for that question, Andrew. Let me begin by maybe situating my work, my larger research agenda, and then I'll address that question in particular. My work focuses on how communities that seek legal reform for purposes of economic growth conceive of these reforms and utilize them in their daily lives and their social lives. And so I'm looking at the relationship between economic growth legal reform, social relations, and I typically look at these relationships in a post-colonial setting. And that's because newly independent countries or territories that exist in the post-colonial era are seeking economic growth as a way to sustain themselves. And so one of the questions that I've come across as a legal sociologist is whether economic growth is more Than just economic growth, where concerned, subordinated or historically subordinated communities, what else are they trying to achieve? The problem of post-colonial life is perhaps one of expectations and reality. The expectation, generally speaking, if you look at the literature, is that previously colonized enslaved people would have arrived at a time where they could control their societies, their economies. Colonizers would have left. Departed their shores. They would uh, achieve more inclusive societies. Communities within the country or territory that were historically separated or excluded from mainstream life would be incorporated. And they would have a greater international voice, specifically a seat at the UN and at a place to voice your concerns and contribute to the international economy or contribute to shaping the international economy the reality is that the type of colonialism that they experienced impacted development trajectory that they had in the post-colonial era. And so you had many countries, African countries, Caribbean countries, that lacked the institutions, certainly the resources to sustain themselves. And so they enter the post-colonial period still dependent, or now newly dependent, On wealthy countries, some of their former colonizers to help them economically in particular. And this is where institutions like the IMF and the World Bank have played a role in lending to these countries, but also in dictating or maybe insisting on certain domestic policies. So the conundrum is one of legal independence, sovereignty, but then this practical dilemma of going it alone and requiring outside assistance and that assistance coming with conditions or terms. And I focus in on the small islands of the Caribbean, and full disclosure, I'm from one of them, Jamaica. And I look at their struggles because their struggle is particularly acute in that they're small, they certainly have limited resources, and they're trying to sustain growing populations. And how they do this is quite a challenge. And I look at the sovereign nations, those that became independent in the 1960s and 70s, the Jamaicas, Trinidad and Tobago, St. Lucia, St. Kitts and the like, and their struggles. And then look at the territories, specifically Bermuda, British Virgin Islands, Cayman Islands, who chose, and and this is their choice, to remain territories of the UK and how their trajectories have diverged. And then ask, What does decolonization mean? And what tools are these countries using to achieve their goals of decolonization? What's been the
0: role of corporate law for fostering economic dependence in post colonial nations? Could you maybe walk us through that history? And perhaps, in what ways do the popular imaginations around corporate law and incorporation in particularly Caribbean nations and territories, how does that? imagination in the global north perhaps run into or miss the point in terms of the project of corporate law in
1: the post-colonial caribbean as a general premise i think we'd all agree corporations are vehicles for economic growth economic prosperity corporations are a way of using the funds from those with resources in our society in a way or in in an enterprise that can use those funds, those savings in a productive manner. So by creating a well-developed corporate law regime, places like Delaware, but also the islands of Bermuda, Cayman Islands, British Virgin Islands, they attract firms who want to incorporate and pay fees for the privilege of incorporating or legally residing in their jurisdiction. Now, just to situate or do these parallels, Business scholar Hal Weissman recently wrote a book, maybe a year or so old now, titled, What's the Matter with Delaware? and suggests that without its incorporation and corporate law franchise, Delaware would not be as successful as it is. In fact, it would be in financial trouble. Places like Bermuda, BVI, which is Virgin Islands, and Cayman Islands are using a similar strategy to Delaware. But I am suggesting that the stakes are a bit higher for them. They are trying to attract firms to incorporate, thereby earning revenue from the fees, and in so doing, use those revenues to take care of their populations and become independent of other jurisdictions, other countries, unlike places like Jamaica and others who may require more assistance. Now, it's a very straightforward argument. It's not so much that corporate law in itself is a magic thing that somehow makes society better. But it is a vehicle that these small jurisdictions with limited resources, things that they can produce and export, can use because they do have sufficient capacity to make rules that are attractive, but perhaps limited capacity to do other things that are more labor-intensive or extract. And so they're pursuing that path similar to Delaware. The concern, and this is one that I have addressed in prior work, is that what is seen from the outside is simply a race to the bottom a concern that these jurisdictions are producing corporate law corporate rules that are probably more manager and director friendly and less concerned with shareholders and and other constituents there are arguments to be made for that i don't get into those arguments in the paper instead i'm saying let's look beyond race to the top race to the bottom just for a minute if we can cabin that argument for a little bit and ask ourselves what are the social consequences here for at least the community where these rules are being made? The question is then, are they better off for having attractive corporate laws? And my friends and colleagues, Will Moon, Christopher Bruner have talked about the success of places like Bermuda, Cayman Island, British Virgin Islands and the international economy. And the question is, are these countries better off than they would have been had they not pursued this path? And would they have the kind of self-sufficiency. And I'll give you a quick example. Bermuda has a a GDP per capita of over a hundred thousand US dollars per year, and they are a territory of the UK. And we can talk about that relationship in a little bit. Whereas Jamaica, probably the largest English-speaking island in the Caribbean, and uh, certainly a sovereign nation from 1962, has a GDP of somewhere about 5,000 or so US dollars per year, depending on the source you, you look at in terms of the quality of life of folks in those territories, British Virgin Islands, Cayman Islands, Bermuda, compared to Jamaica, you can see that there is a, there's quite a difference there. And But that is missed. The stakes of a kind of self-reliance, dignity that comes in a post-colonial period from being able to take care of your society is overlooked. And instead, what is looked at is merely the rules and whether it's a race to the top, race to the bottom. And I don't want to discount the importance of that assessment. But I want to provide some greater context to the stakes at hand there.
0: One of the really fascinating ideas in this paper is the idea of sovereignty as perhaps a lever or a tool for economic growth and development and I wonder if we could maybe focus on that idea for a moment. You mentioned Delaware, of course, that's going to be a familiar reference point for a lot of listeners. Delaware is, of course, a relatively small jurisdiction within the broader United States, and it famously derives a lot of its state revenue and other economic uh, needs from its uh, status as a place to incorporate and do business. I wondered if you could maybe talk about this concept of sovereignty as perhaps a tool for economic growth? How does that perhaps compare to the Delaware instance? How do other jurisdictions around the world, and in particular the Caribbean region that you focus on in this paper, how do they use sovereignty or how does the lack of sovereignty perhaps shape their ability to
1: chart their own futures in terms of economic growth? What the trade-off that places like Bermuda, Cayman Islands, British Virgin Islands, and these are the three jurisdictions that I focus in on because a year or two ago, Will Moon had a brilliant article called Delaware's New Competition, where Professor Moon highlighted the fact that these jurisdictions were actually new competitors to Delaware, doing quite well in terms of attracting corporations that would may have historically gone to Delaware. The issue here is that they are UK overseas territories, United Kingdom overseas territories. They are not sovereign jurisdictions. Uh, this is a choice that they've made at a time when other islands like Jamaica and Trinidad and Tobago and Barbados and others in the Caribbean region were becoming independent. These jurisdictions chose not to do. So. And lots have been written about this, but there was a, an assessment of the likelihood of success, particularly economic success for tiny countries in a large international economy. And the benefits here are, There is UK support. UK does provide some support for national security for these jurisdictions. There is a a reputational benefit being able to engage with investors by saying that we are affiliated with the UK. The common law is what we go by. There is a judicial committee of the Privy Council, the Court of Appeals, which is available in London. And this idea that were there to be a natural disaster, hurricane or the like, there is this jurisdiction of this country that they can turn to the UK for or support. And so there is a certainly a rep- at least a reputational benefit that is achieved by the association. And their arguments are made that this makes investors more comfortable in going to these places than they may, than they may otherwise be. And so now if you look across the Caribbean and you look at Jurisdictions that became independent, became sovereign, you can almost see or juxtapose the situation. In places like Grenada, 1979, shortly after that country became independent, there was a coup. The 1970s and 80s in Jamaica saw tremendous political violence between far left and far political actors. There have been high rates of immigration of highly skilled workers from the Caribbean to places like the United States, United Kingdom. And there have been certainly, the charges, but suggestions of corruption. If you follow the corruption perception index of, of places like Jamaica, Guyana, and others, Trinidad and Tobago, y- you would understand that looking at, at, at these experiences from the perspective of a Bermuda, Cayman Islands, and British Virgin Islands, that independence came w- with some cost. Now, these territories certainly don't have a perfect life and they've had their own set of issues. But the kind of issues referenced in places like Greater Jamaica and other places over the decades are quite significant and they have avoided those. And so the trade off, however, has been lack of formal legal sovereignty and still remaining a territory of the UK where the UK technically could has say over some of the rules that they make and could come in and veto various rulemaking have not done so. And I guess the major argument I'm making In the paper, is that because of their economic independence, that the UK is willing to essentially stay out of their domestic affairs. The local, locally elected leaders, government take care of the day to day lives and activities of the communities in these jurisdictions. And so they get the kind of governance, the kind of self governance, and that post colonial life was supposed to promise. That was one of the expectations they are not beholden to or directed in terms of the policy choices in large part. There are exceptions because the UK says, we're not giving you money, so we're not necessarily following up and checking in and putting all these conditions down. For example, an IMF or a World Bank would do. And they are left to govern themselves take care of their communities. And this is a difference from other places that have that kind of I want to say accountability because of their lending arrangements with wealthy countries or certain international financial institutions. But of course, the trade-off is formal sovereignty. And I don't want to suggest that there is this overarching consensus in all these places. And throughout the society in Bermuda, Cayman Islands, and British Virgin Islands, everyone is on board with this. That It is certainly contested. And there are Segments of each society that would want to see the islands become independent, but so far there hasn't been a majority or enough to actually have a referendum, have some sort of vote to, to pursue that or successfully, I should say, pursue independence. Route
0: has there been external pushback from other nations against countries that are newly independent or that are in this? quasi-independent relationship with colonial powers, has there been pushback against the use of this offshore corporate slash financial services model? And are those criticisms perhaps fair? Do they have a point
1: or are they misplaced? Sure. I would say that, and I've talked about this in my prior work, international power brokers, as I would refer to them, I'm thinking of the organization for economic cooperation development, the European Union and the wealthy uh, countries that comprise their membership are certainly concerned with issues of tax evasion, money laundering and the financing of nefarious schemes through offshore financial centers. I think these are concerns, reasonable concerns, concerns that we should all have. Perhaps the biggest push over the past decade or so has been related to concerns about base erosion and profit shifting by corporations. And as you are aware, there are discussions or efforts towards this global minimum tax. And we'll see how the, that goes. So yes, there are real concerns. And I do not want to discount those concerns or suggest that they're not founded. Scholars like Stephen Dean have suggested that some of these concerns are more heavily directed at some of these Caribbean ex colonies or current territories and more so than perhaps other jurisdictions, Switzerland, and the like. There has been some pushback. And and perhaps the place where you see it is where the EU or the OECD has these lists, these public lists, where they place countries that are not necessarily transparent in their tax and financial dealings of corporations or human individuals within their territories. And so it's essentially a naming and shaming kind of um, scenario. The OECD and the EU have engaged in, and this is written about extensively. As I mentioned, Stephen Dean and others have addressed it. Once again, not saying that there aren't things there to be concerned about. My uh, this paper simply argues that let's look at this other context, this larger post-colonial context. What is at stake for these jurisdictions? What is governing or influencing their strategies? And let's at least have a discussion about alternatives, maybe least harmful ways of addressing the concerns that we have about tax evasion, money laundering, and the like, real concerns, while at the same time, finding ways to assist these uh, smaller jurisdictions to achieve the kind of economic growth and self-reliance that they seek without imposing immense costs on their economies. So that's the dynamic at stake. not wanting to don't play the concerns, but wanting to highlight the larger social context of these historically black and brown countries in the post colonial era, really struggling to achieve the goals and expectations of independence.
0: We've had this conversation a bit in reverse in some ways. The paper is offering in a lot of ways a theory of corporate law and its intersection with the uh, colonialization. And we've started the conversation by talking about a lot of specifics, a lot of concrete developments and issues. I wonder if perhaps we could step back for a moment and talk more generally. I wanted to give you an opportunity to maybe talk a little bit about, particularly given your background as a sociologist in addition to being a legal scholar, to talk a little bit about your theory that you advanced in this paper about the role of corporate law in decolonialization. I don't
1: know if the paper seeks to reveal a grand theory about corporate law, per se, what it tries to do is say that, and this goes back to my, my research agenda or my some of the guiding ideas that are, are central to the work I do, is to say, let's look beyond the rules and the race to the top, race to the bottom dynamic. And let's ask whether the pursuit of economic growth is tied to a deeper historical and social context in some places. And uh, let's look at how, for example, these offshore financial centers or offshore corporate law havens, as Will Moon has termed them, or market-dominant small jurisdictions, as uh, Christopher Bruner has, has termed them, how they are using corporate law and what they're seeking to achieve. And so it is certainly less about corporate law as a magic gateway to happiness but it is about looking at how a set of jurisdictions who have been through a long colonial history and are trying to make a way for themselves in the post-colonial era are using the tools of corporate law to assist their society, their community, to achieve the fruits of a kind of independence, even as they remain territories in the case of Bermuda, Cayman Islands, British Virgin Islands. I I think that there is a larger theory uh, if you look at the relationship between the territories and the UK that suggests that, and this is stepping back from corporate law, suggests that perhaps independence or sovereignty or the fruits of decolonization require a certain interdependence. Perhaps it requires international support. Perhaps it's not a go-it-alone strategy whereby, okay, now you're sovereign, go for it, and Achieve the, the goals that, that you set for yourselves. It is something that we should all have a stake in and should all be helping these places to achieve. And so I think those are the larger points that I would like for readers to take away from it. Corporate law is a tool. And as I mentioned in the paper, it is not a tool that all post-colonial or jurisdictions or territories can use. So I suggested that places like Turks and Caicos, Anguilla, Montserrat, who also engage in a kind of offshore corporate law, offshore finance activities, don't have the same benefits that Bermuda, British Virgin Islands and Cayman Islands have. Their enterprises are are not as successful, not as well-developed, comparatively speaking. And so the kind of independence that or practical autonomy, as I referred to in the paper, that Bermuda, Cayman, and the British Virgin Islands have. Arguably, they don't. And I don't want to go into too much detail there, but I discussed this at length in the paper. So it's not a, a one-size-fits-all strategy or something that everyone can pursue. Historical context, certainly physical capacity matters as well. The point here is that these countries may have achieved a kind of balance or a kind of sweet spot that not everyone can achieve.
0: As we close, I wondered if you could situate this paper in your broader scholarly agenda. Are there any questions that you weren't able to tackle in this paper or that were generated by this paper that we might see some development on from you or others in the years to come?
1: In the near future, I am planning to build on this project with at least two other articles. One really is going to be focused on thinking through the role of economic identity, which is something I've been working on for a while, but with respect to law and development theory, because my approach to this project and to several other projects is one of not necessarily a corporate law scholar or an international tax scholar. I wouldn't claim to be either, but as someone who is concerned about or interested in law and its role in economic development and looking at how communities conceive of legal reform, and what kind of what kinds of social dimensions are at play here. And the next paper that I'm planning to work on, or that I've begun work on, seeks to look at law and development theory from the perspective of economic identity, and how that should play a role in how we think about law's role in the economy, just to, for, for readers or listeners who aren't aware, I've written about the fact that some communities have formed identities around the kind of commercial activities that they do. A ready example is uh, West Virginia and coal and how coal permeates a society and is involved in the social lives of residents. And I've suggested that a kind of identity uh, around offshore financial services, etc., exists in places like the Caribbean and some of the islands that do this kind of work. And we should think about how that shapes rulemaking, how they conceive, of rulemaking within the context of this identity. But the next paper wants to build that out and look at community economic identity as a way to conceive of law and development theory and how that should impact how places looking to build their economies should think of or pursue that kind of legal reform for growth strategy. Another project squarely builds on this paper by asking what obligations are due to former colonies by former colonizers as they pursue economic growth. And so it is less of a corporate law paper and maybe more of a political economy type piece, but really looks at the struggles that some of these places have had in the post-colonial era and the efforts they're making to use law in their growth strategy. And then asking what obligations are owed to them by the international community, by former colonizers, and, and exploring how we should think about that kind of dynamic.
0: Our guest today has been Martin Sibilis, Associate Professor of Law at Emory University. We've discussed his new article, Corporate Laws Decolonialization, which is forthcoming in the UCLA Law Review. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode.
1: Martin, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Andrew, thank you again for having me. It was an honor and a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard today, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, rate the show, and let other people know about it too. If you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.